With recent advances in serologic testing and molecular diagnostics, our understanding of the peripheral nervous system has grown ever more sophisticated. But the basics of nerve conduction studies, or the electrodiagnostic testing that we do on peripheral nerves, this really hasn't changed much over the last century. We're still doing this a lot like it's always been done, with very few exceptions. So if you'd like to know what this is that neurologists do in the EMG lab, then you're really going to like our show this week. Today on Brainwaves, we're going to cover a few of the basic concepts that underlie nerve conduction testing, with a particular emphasis on conduction block. It all starts with a zap. And to know how the nerves transmit the information from that electrical impulse, you have a stimulating site and a recording site. We're going to start really simply, and it's going to gradually get more and more complex. Using the ulnar sensory nerve as an example, the technician will stimulate the pinky finger and record from the medial wrist for an orthodromic response. Orthodromic just means that the stimulation and recording take place in the direction of the natural signal. Antidromic is the opposite. So for an antidromic median sensory nerve study, one would stimulate at the wrist and record from the index finger. Both orthodromic and antidromic responses usually give you the same information as far as the speed of conduction goes, but antidromic sensory nerve testing is typically preferred because the response amplitudes are larger, making it easier to identify these responses in pathologic states. Alright, so you've zapped your patient and you're recording for that response. Once you get a response from your recording electrode, then you have a lot of information to work with. Here's where it gets tricky. And for now, we're only going to focus on the sensory nerve responses because they're a little simpler than motor responses. Once you've shocked your patient, you get two basic types of information. First, how large is that response? And second, how quick was that response? The size of the response is only measured by one value, the amplitude. So that's simple enough. When it's the sensory nerve action potential, it's the snap. And when it's the motor equivalent, it's called the compound motor action potential, or CMAP. Next, the speed of conduction is measured in a couple of ways. And each way gives you a little bit of different data on where the nerve could be injured, or how exactly it could be injured. First, you get a peak latency. This is the time it takes for the stimulus to reach the peak of the first negative deflection of the recording electrode. Then you get a snap or a CMAP duration, which is the time it takes from the onset of the recorded potential to the first baseline crossing. It's easier to imagine when you're looking at it on the screen. This is the time it takes for the hump of that response to start and then to finish. Think of the duration as the bell curve of all the responses as they are arriving at the recording site. The duration tells you the time difference between when the first and the last nerve signals arrive at the recording electrode. Latency and duration sound like they could be used to describe the same thing, making matters a little bit confusing, but latency refers to the time it takes for the signal to travel from the stimulating electrode to the recording electrode, and duration refers to the time it takes from when the first signal arrives to when the last signal arrives. And the last measurement we use when determining speed of conduction is the conduction velocity. In sensory nerves, this is calculated as the distance between the stimulating and the recording sites divided by the time it takes for each stimulus to reach the recording electrode. Now I said earlier that motor responses are a little more complicated. Here's what I meant by that. While you only need a single stimulation in order to calculate a sensory nerve latency, you need two stimulations to calculate a motor latency. That's because the distal latency of a motor study, or the time it takes for the stimulation to result in a muscle response, it's a reflection of several physiologic events. 
The distal motor latency captures the nerve conduction time from the distal stimulating site to the neuromuscular junction, the neuromuscular junction transmission time, and then the muscle depolarization time. So let's presume that your distal stimulating site, for example, is near the wrist for a median nerve. Then you take a more proximal stimulation, say at the elbow, and record the latency from that signal to result in muscular depolarization. Now you have the proximal latency from the elbow to the abductor pollicis brevis depolarization and the distal latency from the wrist to the APB. By subtracting the distal latency from the proximal latency, you can get a pure latency of the motor nerve across that distance between the two points of stimulation, the proximal and the distal points. It probably sounds more confusing than it actually is, so I put up a graphic from Preston and Shapiro on the blog that illustrates these measurements. Here's a better analogy. Imagine that you wanted to measure the time it takes for LeBron James to sprint across the court and make a slam dunk. LeBron's going downhill! Oh! What is LeBron's velocity during his sprint? You can measure the time it takes him to run from one far end of the court to the other, the proximal latency, but as he gets near to the basket, at about the free throw line, he's going to slow down in order to control the ball and make the basket. And once he reaches the basket, it's only going to be his momentum that will continue to push him forward to the end of the court from there. He's not sprinting anymore here. So measuring the latency from one end of the court to the other isn't going to help you accurately calculate the velocity of his sprint. You want to capture the latency between two points where he's deep in stride and subtract out the rest, like the latency it takes him to sprint from the far end of the court to the other end's free throw line. So you measure the latency from the far end of the court to the other, the proximal latency, and then you measure the latency from the free throw line to the end of the court, the distal latency, and when you have these two, then you can subtract that free throw latency from the total latency to give you a better representation of his actual latency. Enough of the analogies. What do you do with this information once you have it? What do all these numbers mean, and how do you interpret them? The way I was taught to look at these numbers is like this. As a general principle, when evaluating for nerve damage, you've got to always be thinking bigger picture. Is peripheral nerve damage present, or is it absent? Is the nerve damage consistent with axon loss or demyelination? Is it distally predominant, or is it diffuse? Is the nerve damage multifocal or unifocal? While you've got to start the investigation by looking at each of these individual numbers, describing speed and amplitude, you're also trying to tease out these features which are going to be useful in making a clinical diagnosis. So you start with the sensory nerve responses. And that's where I start for a number of reasons. Because if the sensory nerves are normal, then that means either A, nothing is discernibly wrong with the peripheral nerves, B, something's wrong, but it's not affecting the large sensory fibers, like it's a purely motor problem or it's a small fiber neuropathy, or C, something's wrong and it's proximal to the dorsal root ganglion. This last point is a major pearl. Because the dorsal root ganglion lies outside of the neural foramen, Foraminal compression will not injure the dorsal root ganglion or the distal nerve. So with a radiculopathy, for example, the patient may have a sensory disturbance, but the sensory responses will be normal because the dorsal root ganglion and its afferent axon are intact. So let's take a look at a real sensory nerve study. For those of you with an iPhone or at your computer, I've uploaded a few examples for you to follow along with on our blog. We'll start with case number one. Starting right to left, We'll begin with the snap. The left sural nerve snap is 2.9 microvolts, which is small. It should be at least 6 in an adult. And the left perineal snap is NR, which means no response. So what does that all mean? 
Well, for starters, it means that there is a lesion in these afferent sensory nerves, and that the lesion is distal to the dorsal root ganglion. But is the nerve damaged to the axon or to the myelin? Going back to our basics, the snap amplitude, like the CMAP amplitude, reflects the number of underlying axons. So when you have axon loss, your snaps and CMAPs will drop. And some people may just have low amplitudes, or it may be technician dependent. So when you can, you should try to compare the same nerve on each side, which can be helpful to determine if one snap is pathologically low or if it's not. In this case, we don't have a contralateral leg study. So all we can say is that the sural and perineal snaps are small. And I guess this means axon loss, right? Well, no. At least, not exactly. With axon loss, one of the first changes you'll see in nerve conduction studies will be that drop in the snaps or CMAPs. But a small snap doesn't necessarily indicate axon loss. A small snap can also be consistent with demyelination, as can a small CMAP. And when you see the amplitude of a CMAP fall by more than 50% between proximal and distal stimulation sites, this is called conduction block. Or more rarely, small CMAPs can be seen in severe myopathies, because CMAPs are also dependent on that neuromuscular junction transmission and the motor responses to the stimulation. So if there's not a lot of muscle there, the CMAP response is just going to be low. Here is one of the main takeaway points for this entire episode. SNAPs and CMAPs are not totally useful in distinguishing axon loss from demyelination. In the acquired demyelinating neuropathies, where the demyelination is patchy, there is slowed saltatory conduction along some of the parts of some of the peripheral nerves. So if you take a bulky peripheral nerve, some of those individual nerve fibers are going to be signaling normally and quickly, like 40 to 60 centimeters per second. And some of them are going to be signaling slowly, maybe 20 to 30 centimeters per second. Therefore, when you're recording at that distal site, the summated response is going to be lower than what's anticipated because all the signals are arriving at separate times. Like cars on a highway who are constantly honking. If they all arrive at the same time at the end of the highway, it's going to be a very loud honking sound. But if they arrive kind of at separate times at the end of the highway, then the honking sound you hear at the end of the highway is going to be a little bit softer. And let's bring this back to how I was talking about duration earlier. How duration is that term we use to describe the time it takes from when the first signal and the last signal reach the recording site. A longer duration indicates that there's a larger difference in the velocity of the individual fibers. And electrographically, when we visualize this nerve signal, this is called temporal dispersion. So when you see these features, you know, conduction block and temporal dispersion, they're going to be features of an acquired pattern of demyelination, like AIDP, multifocal motor neuropathy, or the POEM syndrome. In congenital cases of demyelination, like in CMT1A, due to a mutation in PMP22, you won't see these characteristics where some of the nerves are partially slowed and others are going to be normal. All the nerves are going to be equally slowed. But back to our example here, case number one, looking at the raw numbers themselves and seeing that the snap is low in the sural nerve, we're going to need more information to decide where the pathology lies. Is it in the axon or in the myelin sheath? To determine if demyelination is present in this case, we'll need evidence that there's slowed saltatory conduction. As we mentioned before, this is quantified by things like conduction velocity, distal latency, and the duration. Starting with the conduction velocity, which I think is the easiest to follow, 
the conduction velocity of the left sural nerve is 40 centimeters per second. A good rule of thumb to remember is that velocities in the legs should be about 40, and in the arms it should be about 50. So this sural nerve velocity of 40 is what we expect it to be, about 40. Looking at the left perineal sensory nerve, the conduction velocity is zero, and this is because there was no sensory nerve response detected, so a velocity can't be calculated. Together, this is not a great picture for demyelination. It seems more axonal. But before we reach that conclusion, let's take a look at the rest of the nerves and see what they show. In the left arm, the radial nerve has an amplitude of 6.5, much lower than the normal of 15 to 20 or so, but the velocity is normal, so this is more of an axonal injury pattern. The left median nerve amplitude should be about 15 to 20, but the amplitude between digit 2 and the wrist is only 5.7, with a conduction velocity of 49, close enough to 50. This is another axonal pattern. The ulnar sensory amplitude should be about 10, and one of the readings is a 6, so a little lower than expected, but the conduction velocity is normal in the 50s. Overall, this is a pattern of low sensory amplitudes without any slowing, meaning axon loss. If I had to say if it was focal or multifocal, distally predominant or diffuse, I would say it appears pretty diffuse, involving the left upper and lower extremity sensory nerves, and then maybe there's more of a focal component at that left perineal nerve since there was no response there, and the sural nerve appeared at least a little bit intact. So maybe there's something else kind of related to that, maybe the patient was crossing their legs too much. We'll skip over the interpretation of the motor nerves for this case, but I'll just acknowledge that a similar pattern was observed in the C-maps throughout the left side and there was no evidence of demyelination. So this total study was read by the neuromuscular doctor as a moderate to severe sensory motor axonal polyneuropathy. Disorders consistent with this would be severe diabetes, uremia, and some nutritional deficiencies. Let's consider another case. This is going to be case number two on the blog. Starting with this patient's sensory nerve responses, Again, to determine if there is a lesion present, and if that lesion is proximal or distal to the dorsal root ganglion, looking at the left radial, median, and ulnar nerves, there's no response, NR. So this lesion is distal to the dorsal root ganglion, but we can't tell if it's demyelinating or if it's axonal, if it's distally predominant or if it's diffuse. Looking at the motor studies next, the median motor amplitude, the median CMAP, it drops from 2.9 millivolts to 1.4 millivolts as you record from proximal to distal. A normal median CMAP should be more than 4 millivolts, so this CMAP is already lower than it should be at 2.9, and then it falls even further to 1.4 with distal stimulation. This is your example of conduction block, a fall in the CMAP of more than 50% between proximal and distal stimulation. But this doesn't necessarily rule out severe axon loss, even though we said that conduction block is associated with demyelination. So we need to know if this is going to be related to any slowing of the conduction velocities or any prolongation of distal motor latency. Moving right to left on our chart, the conduction velocity is 17. 17 centimeters per second when it should be 50 for the median nerve. Remember, 50 for the arms, 40 for the legs. This velocity of 17 is consistent with demyelination, which most electrophysiologists will define as a conduction velocity slowing to 70% or less of what's expected. In the arms, knowing that the conduction velocity should be 50, anything that's less than 35 would be consistent with demyelination. And in the legs, where a conduction velocity should be 40, a velocity less than 28 would be concerning for myelin injury. 
Now, let it be known that severe axon loss can also cause some mild slowing, but it's usually not to 70% of what's expected. Slowing due to severe axonal loss is going to be somewhere between 35 and 45 centimeters per second in the arms and 28 to 35 centimeters per second in the legs. Roughly. Back to our patient, case number two. The patient's study is consistent, at least for now, with demyelination and conduction block of the left median motor nerve. Often, this is going to indicate one of the acquired demyelinating processes, like we mentioned before, AIDP, CIDP, MMN, or POEMS. But let's look through the rest of the nerves before we jump to conclusions. The left ulnar CMAP is lower than expected, 2.6, when it should be at least 4. But it doesn't fall below 50% from proximal to distal stimulation, so not exactly in the conduction block range, but still low. The velocity here is also quite slow, 15 to 22 centimeters per second when it should be 50. So now we have evidence of ulnar demyelination, but this nerve has no conduction block. For our patient, the phrenic nerves were also tested because the patient had an elevated hemidiaphragm on chest x-ray, and it does appear that the phrenic nerves also have very small CMAPs. Altogether, this is a pattern consistent with diffuse demyelinating disease and possibly conduction block, probably meaning an acquired demyelinating disorder. But what if I told you that the motor nerve duration was normal, meaning that there was no temporal dispersion on visualization of the CMAPs, that the CMAP durations were longer than they should be? The CMAP morphology in this patient's nerves was normal, just a lot smaller in amplitude than expected. This indicates that each of the individual motor nerve fibers were signaling at the same slow velocity and reaching the recording site at nearly the same time, suggesting that whatever the demyelinating event was to begin with, it started in each of the nerves at the same time and progressed at the same rate. Only a heritable form of demyelination can cause this, and that's because the genes that are responsible for myelin production are equally dysfunctional in all the peripheral nerves. It turns out that this patient actually had a mutation in PMP22, which is causative for CMT1A. And sometimes you can get conduction block in Charcot-Marie Tooth, but you shouldn't see the temporal dispersion or phase cancellation or prolonged durations. So that's what we found in her nerve conduction study. Case closed. I think that this has been a good start to the fundamentals of nerve conduction testing. We opened our show kind of talking about the basics of nerve conduction studies and some of the elementary principles of interpreting these studies, identifying axonal patterns from demyelinating ones, the importance of distinguishing distal lesions from diffuse lesions, and unifocal versus multifocal processes, and why you should always be looking at the bigger picture. Now, we didn't cover everything this week, and there was nowhere near enough time to go over how to perform a nerve conduction study. For example, we didn't even acknowledge the ground electrode, which provides your zero-voltage reference point. We didn't talk about when nerves begin to show signs of injury on conduction testing, which is why a patient who has severe GBS can look like their nerves are totally normal during the first week of symptoms. We also didn't get into all the exceptions to the rules of nerve conduction testing. For example, I told you that conduction block is associated with acquired demyelinating processes, like AIDP. But it's also seen in some cases of axonal neuropathies, like AMON, acute motor axonal neuropathy. And we didn't even get to the EMG, which is a complementary study to the nerve conduction test and should be done along with it. I guess that we'll all have to wait for another time. Until then, happy holidays, everybody.
This episode of Brainwaves was produced by myself. Our unofficial content supervisors were David Preston and Barbara Shapiro, whose textbook, Electromyography and Neuromuscular Disorders, provided nearly all the useful information in today's show. The music this week was courtesy of Cold Noise, Jesse Spillane, Loyalty Freak Music, and Yishua. That wraps it up. I'm Jim Siegler, and I will talk to you again soon.